Whilst I'm putting my Bible on the floor, it would be great if you guys could have your Bibles open for this. We're going to be looking through it quite heavily. But first, good morning, everyone. My name is Sam Foster. For those of you that I haven't had the privilege or the pleasure of meeting before, I'm one of the youth pastors here at Richmond Anglican. And I have the privilege and pleasure of opening God's Word with you this morning. Last week, for those of you that were here at our slightly larger combined service, we began a series on 2 Timothy that we'll be studying together over four weeks. This is week two. Whoa. This is week two of that series. Um, but before we get into today's scripture, I'd like to recommend a little tidbit for your next week. Yeah, I was wondering. Cool. Yeah, that's better. Over the next week, it would be great if you guys could read over 2 Timothy chapters 1 and 2, and even 3 in preparation for next week's sermon, because unfortunately in four weeks, we can't cover absolutely everything there is from this book, but there's so much to go over. That'll help you guys understand what's being said up the front here just a little bit better. And as always, the sermons from up the front here are available online on our church website, on Spotify, iTunes, any platform you can find a podcast will be on there. Just search for Richmond Anglican and it should come up. Those of you that were here last week in Ian's sermon, we gained an understanding of who Timothy was. And it's important to remember that this letter is written to Timothy. When we're trying to understand any part of the Bible, it's healthy to know the context. In fact, it's essential to know the context. This book, just as a little catch up for those of you that may not have been there, is written to a young-ish man. I'm only 20 years old myself. He was probably about 30 when this was written to him. So young-ish, young to some of you, old to others. A young-ish man who Paul picked up on his second missionary journey and then eventually ordained as a minister in the church that he had established in Ephesus. This letter is written by Paul from prison, from a terrible place, and it's largely understood that Timothy, the person he's writing it to, is rather timid. That should hopefully give you enough for this week, but if you want more of an explanation, as I said before, listen to last week's sermon. Ian did an amazing job going into that in a little more detail. For this week, know that we have a timid, young, male pastor. Know those four things and that'll give you a bit of context for this, what we're going to go through. And it's understandably hard, in fact it should be hard, for you to think how this, this letter is relevant to you. Or even to me for that matter. You may not be young, you may not be male, you may not be timid, you may not be a pastor, you may be none of those things, you may be some of them. But it's sometimes hard to think how parts of the Bible can be relevant to you. So ask yourself, why? Why is this relevant to you? And what we're hopefully going to see in today's passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2 is that the reasons Paul gives to Timothy for the advice that he gives him describes the very bedrock of our faith as Christians, the very basis for what we believe. The reasons that Paul gives to Timothy to move forwards in his struggles that are going to come and to face the inevitable suffering of his faith are the same reasons for you and for me to stand firm in the suffering that comes throughout our Christian journey. Excuse me. But before we really delve into this weighty task, I'd like to pray. So please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word 
given to us that we may understand your will for our lives. Please help me to speak clearly and faithfully this morning. And please put it on our hearts to respond to your word and be courageous for the growth of your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I believe in this chapter Paul gives Timothy five reasons, five core reasons to stand firm in his timidity, to survive his sufferings. A pastor over in America who I'd recommend looking up by the name of John Piper called these five things foundation stones. I think that's an appropriate term, foundation stones, the base, the bottom line, the fundamentals. And we'll get to these five in a moment, but there's so much in the first part of this chapter that I didn't want you guys to miss out on. So we're going to screen through the first eight verses, um, and, then we'll, and then we'll get on to those five foundation stones in a moment. But first, look with me. This is verses 1 through 3. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul is urging Timothy to be strong. Remember, he's not naturally strong. We learned that from chapter 1. And he implores him to tell people what he's heard. Preach the good news, get on with his ministry, and finally, in chapter 3, share in suffering. Do not shy away from what may come, but rather embrace it. So we get three things. Verse 1, be strong. Verse 2, get on with your ministry. And verse 3, when suffering comes, embrace it. Let's continue. I apologize about the pace, but I've only got so much time. This is verses 4 through 6. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. In verses 4 to 6, Paul has three simple messages similar to verses 1 through 3. From verse 4, please God, not men. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer, in this case, God. Verse 5, do good, but make sure that you do that good in the right way. There's no point getting to that final destination if you got there by doing the wrong thing. Make sure that whilst you're pleasing God, you do good in the right way. And finally, in verse 6, work hard, lest no rewards come. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. It makes sense in our heads that someone who works hard, maybe even works the hardest, should be the first person to reap the rewards. That makes sense in our heads, but we can't forget that there's also a flip side to that. How can you expect to reap rewards when you put in no effort? Work hard, lest no rewards come. So I just went through those verses briefly, just to provide you guys a bit of a background for what comes later, and so I can refer back to them. But the part we're interested in, and I hope God puts on your hearts to focus on with me this morning, begins in verse 8. This is where Paul gives Timothy the first of our five foundation stones upon which he can lean when time gets tough. When suffering comes, he can remember these things, and hopefully we can as well. Look with me at verse 8. 
Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Remember Jesus Christ. Never go long, Timothy, without remembering Jesus. As before, Paul is giving Timothy advice. But he next tells us two things about Jesus. He could have picked anything. I'm sure every one of you could think of at least 10, maybe even hundreds of things to describe Jesus. But Paul, in this instance, picks two very specific things. Raised from the dead and descended from David. Why? There's that question again. Why did Paul choose those two things? Well, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he's alive. And if he is alive and you are in him, then you are alive with him. And secondly, if he is the descendant of David, then his resurrection was not a random act. It may be a bit vague for you guys or even me to understand because we're not a Jew living thousands of years ago. But for them, they knew that Jesus being a descendant of David meant that he was the Messiah foretold. He was not someone pulled off the street and raised to life at random. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we see that a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's the name of David's father, was promised to bear fruit. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6, we are told of a righteous branch that will come from David's line to, and this is a quote, reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. So that's our first foundation stone, a brick to bear the weight of our faith in suffering. Jesus is alive and his resurrection was not random. Look with me at verse 9 for our second foundation stone. We'll read the, the four words just before. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Paul is in chains for the gospel. He's in prison in Rome when he's writing this letter to Timothy, and he doesn't try to sugarcoat it for Timothy. He may be timid, but Paul makes him look straight down the barrel of the pain that he is about to experience. This gospel for which we work is not one that will be embraced with open arms, but rather Paul is bound like a criminal. He is despised, hated, shackled. It hurts. And then we get, after all of that, the foundation stone. But God's word is not chained. Paul says that he may be bound, he may be chained, but the word of God is not bound. This is a gospel for which Paul suffers. It will not be easy, but when suffering comes, when they chain you up, Timothy, remember and hold to the fact that God's word is not bound. If a day comes when it feels like you've worked in vain, when it feels like everything you do is pointless, it's not getting anywhere, remember the word of God is bigger than you are. It is not bound. So, so far, Jesus is alive. He reigns as Messiah and King. And secondly, his word cannot be defeated. Number three, moving right along with the next verse. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. This may get a little too literary, but consider why that word. There's that question, why again? Why did Paul write it like this? He could have said plenty of other words. He could have said, I endure everything for the sake of the church. 
I enjoy everything for the sake of those who know Christ, for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Why that word? Election. Paul is projecting confidence to Timothy. We have to remember, Timothy is timid, and Paul is trying to encourage him in his suffering. He is being certain in the face of Timothy's timidness. These are foundation stones, bricks to build your life on. So when suffering comes your way, you will not fall away. The word elect describes the church, but finds its basis in eternity, in both before and after. Christians are the elect, chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world. And this is certainly a heavy thing to consider, delicate, perhaps controversial, the idea of election. But Paul, in this one verse, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, protects us from making some of the key mistakes surrounding election. God's election of his people means that all those who would be and are saved were elected by God to be so from the very beginning of time. It's a necessary realization to come to when you have a God that knows everything and is all-powerful. He has to span across time for that to be the case. But there are pitfalls. There are things that we can fall into with our thinking. We could think, and before I say it, this is wrong, so keep that in mind, If there are people who are chosen before the foundation of the world, then certainly we don't need to risk our lives to bring them to eternal glory. Wrong. That goes against what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation. If there was nothing that we could do, why is Paul striving, struggling, enduring for the sake of those who have already been chosen? You see, Paul knows that the election of God's people doesn't mean that we do nothing. It doesn't mean we sit at home and wait for God to do all the work. It means that we have been appointed as the instruments for their salvation. This certainty that comes along with election shouldn't stop us from working, but should actually give us confidence in the fact that when we work, we can know that there are people out there chosen to turn to him. They just need us to help bring them to him. Another mistake that could be made here is we could think the complete opposite. We could think in the other direction. If Paul must preach, persuade, inform, strive, and suffer to bring salvation to the elect, then there mustn't be an election. Christians aren't chosen. It's a choice. Wrong. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. God has chosen his people. Timothy, work to save them. Richmond Anglican, 10 a.m. service, work to save them. Don't think that your prayer or your work is pointless, but rather it is essential. Remember this verse when it feels like nothing is working. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation. That's number three. That's our third foundation stone, our third brick to stand upon. Number one, Jesus is alive, reigns as king, and his resurrection was not random. Number two, we may be bound, we may be chained, but the word of God can never be bound. And number three, 
of all the undeserving sinners that make up mankind. God has an elect who will be saved, so endure everything to save them. Our next foundation stone can be found across three verses. So look with me at verses 11 through 13, where Paul says this. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. First words that Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying. Timothy can have confidence in what Paul says. The next few statements are trustworthy. So what does Paul say? Well, he speaks in two categories towards the promises that God has made regarding triumph and regarding unbelief. Firstly, in verses 11 and 12 are the promises of triumph. There are, there are two of these in this section. So look with me at verse 11, firstly. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If you've embraced death and your death to this life in Jesus, you are going to live. Come to terms with the idea that your life is not your own, Timothy, but rather belongs to God and by extension Jesus through his death on the cross. Then you can be assured that you will live. Continuing on, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Endurance leads to salvation and even further glory with Christ in heaven. In Mark's gospel, chapter 13, verse 13, he says, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Those are trustworthy sayings of triumph. Trust them. Death to life. Endurance to rule. If you are united with Jesus, you will live with him. So endure the suffering that comes your way. Take comfort in that. But in the next few verses... The message is not quite so positive. I wish it was. I wish I could stand up here and just give you guys some lovely, positive stuff to make you go home and smile about. But this next bit's not quite like that. This is the second part of verse 12 leading to verse 13. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If you turn away and renounce Jesus' claim to your life, at the end of days, Jesus will turn away from you. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, it says, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. How terrible. When you could be hearing, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Instead you hear, I don't know you. Timothy. Sam. Denying Jesus leads to Jesus denying you. So in light of that, in light of that, be wary of the next verse, verse 13. Take care not to think that it's positive. Don't take it out of context because context is so essential. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. That doesn't mean faithful to you. That doesn't mean faithful to me. If you renounce him, turn away from him, he will renounce you in the end. That is a promise. And if you cease to be faithful, you stop loving him and refuse to turn back. You can always turn back. If you refuse to turn back, he remains faithful. Faithful to his promise that you will be judged. Your deeds, which can never be perfect without the Messiah you've rejected, will be held against you. God cannot deny himself, cannot disown himself. Thankfully, in both his promises of triumph and his promise of rejection, he remains faithful to himself. That's the fourth one. That's our fourth foundation stone, our fourth thing to lean against in hard times when it feels like nothing is going right. If you don't run away, but trust him as an undeserving sinner, he cannot deny you because that would be to deny himself. Our final one, number five, in looking at the next few verses, few verses, it can seem as if Paul is done with giving a basis for confidence through suffering. And he seems to be kind of expounding or building upon the stuff that he mentioned in those first six, seven, eight verses that we skimmed through. That's why we went through them, so that this next part makes sense. He's building upon that in the next couple of verses. But in verse 19, he has one more foundation stone and it wraps it all together. So let's quickly skim through these preceding verses and build upon what we've already learnt to get to our final stone. Look with me at verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Keep reminding God's people of what I have said, of his faithfulness in both triumph and rejection, Timothy, of the assuredness of salvation through Christ. Warn them against quarreling with words. It is of no value. Don't think that this means that words hold no value, but rather in this instance, and we'll see a little bit later on, words have too much power. They should not be quarreled about or bandied around, thrown out without meaning. Cut them off, Timothy. Verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Try to live up to the calling you have been given, Timothy. There will be those who wish not to hear what you have to say, but be faithful in the way that you present it. Do not be ashamed of the gospel and change what it says to please people. As we saw in verse 14, verse 14, verse 4, please God, not men. Portray the gospel accurately and faithfully. In verses 16 and 17, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. This harks back, this goes back to the importance of words mentioned in verse 14. Do not throw around words without meaning or get too caught up in the distractions of false teaching. Cut it out, Timothy. It's like gangrene. 
If you guys don't know what gangrene is, don't look it up. I did. It's horrific. Um, it's an infection which eats away at flesh, devouring it. If you want to know more, Tony Hilsden came up to me after the 9 a.m. service and showed me massive chunks of his arm that are missing from when he got it when he was younger. It's horrifying. And there's no real treatment for gangrenous flesh because that flesh is already dead. It just has to be cut off. It has to be removed. Paul puts this frivolousness, this pointlessness of speech, of talk, this false teaching by those two mentioned guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and clearly others, those are just two pertinent examples, on the same level as an infection which must be removed. Don't waste time on fighting about these false words, these words. Remove them, lest they spread and destroy the faith of some. And we know from the promises made in the previous foundation stone that God will be faithful and a destroyed faith is the same thing as a dead soul. So guys, Timothy, a timid young male pastor with all of this just laid at his feet. I can't imagine what it would actually be like to read this for yourself, to receive this in a letter, probably hand-delivered with a wax seal or something fancy on it because it's old, and then to read how suffering will come, but you must endure. I would be terrified, regardless of how confident I am in my day-to-day life. This would be terrifying. And it seems in the next verse, in verse 19, that Paul realizes this. He realizes he may have scared Timothy away a little bit. And so he gives him this final foundation stone and he says this. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Despite the hardships that you might face, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows you and he knows me. So take heart. If the church seems so messed up to you that you despair in the lack of clarity as to who is God's, it's often easy to think that the church would work so much better if there just weren't people in it. Do not despair, for the Lord knows those who are his. And finally, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord, or in other words, those who belong to the Lord, depart from evil. Turn away from it. You will know these people by what they produce, Timothy. That's our fifth stone. The Lord knows those who are his. So let's summarize what Paul has given Timothy, and then by extension, us. He's given us five foundation stones that he originally gave to a young, timid male pastor to prop him up in the face of suffering, to give him courage to be strong, get on with his ministry, and when suffering comes, Embrace it. But these five things should ring true for you. So take comfort in them when suffering comes. Number one, Jesus is alive and his resurrection was not random. Number two, you may be bound, chained even. Christians may be persecuted, but the word of God cannot be bound. It is greater than you and greater than me. 
Number three, of all the undeserving sinners in this world, God has an elect. Those he has chosen for salvation, so endure everything to save them. Number four, God cannot deny himself in both his promises of life and triumph and those of rejection leading to rejection. Number five, the Lord knows those who are his. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are faithful, that you never change and thus are a constant in our lives, Lord. Please help us to strive for confidence in you, as Paul urged Timothy to help us not to be timid, but rather work for your kingdom faithfully as you are faithful to us. When suffering, pain and anguish comes, help us not to turn away, but fall back on these truths, Lord, that Jesus is alive and will not deny us if we endure. In your son's name we pray. Amen.